Hello, and welcome to the podcast Byzantium and Friends. I am Anthony, your host. I vividly remember 22 years ago going to see a Clint Eastwood kind of sci-fi movie called Space Cowboys. That was my last year of graduate school, and those were the days when you might actually have a cohort of graduate students all studying you know, late antique or Byzantine history at the same institution rather than just one lonely soul. And we all went to see it, and there was a scene in the movie where there was some secret Soviet satellite that they, I think NASCA discovered or something like that, and it had some nukes on it, and they had to send some people up to make sure that its orbit didn't degrade with all of these bombs in it. Anyway, uh, spoiler alert. <laughs> anyway, and at some point, one of the NASA engineers unfolds this huge piece of paper that has this immensely complicated schematic, like a blueprint for the Soviet satellite, and he turns in exasperation to his peers, and he says, who designed this Byzantine piece of crap? Okay, this was some satellite from the 60s or something like that. I don't know. Anyway, but there was a very small contingent in the audience that reacted powerfully to that claim, uh, either cheering or booing. I don't know what we did anyway, but the representation of Byzantium is such that, you know, you... It's important just to be acknowledged that you exist every once in a while in the movies. Okay. All right. What I did not think at the time is, huh, what do we know about Byzantine schematics and diagrams? Like, do they even exist? And would they be very, very complicated and convoluted, you know, quote, Byzantine? In fact, I never had that thought until my guest today, Linda Safran, posed the question to me, and I drew a blank. So she's been working on Byzantine diagrams uh, ever since then, and I've kind of been thinking about them a little bit and rereading her material now that she's published um, a lot on it. And we had the conversation that you're about to hear. I've thought about how badly diagrams sit within the division of our disciplines. And this is a theme that we've come back to in a number of episodes. You've probably heard me talking about this over and over again, but... You know, the way in which we see the past is so often structured by the way in which we divide the material into disciplines and assign methodologies and, um, you know, subject matter to different disciplines. You know, there's philology and art history and archaeology and so forth. And diagrams caught my attention because they seem to fall into the cracks between those disciplines to a considerable degree. Not entirely, but if you think about it, they're often found in manuscripts to illustrate something, but our philologists who edit our texts, thank you philologists, very important service, you know, tip of the hat, don't edit the diagrams, at least not, that's very, very, very rare. It would have to be something very um, closely connected to the substance of the text. Like, for example, it might be a military treatise and you need to have the diagrams that show the arrangement of the soldiers in the particular formation to understand what the text is saying. Okay, that's one exception. But normally, our editors don't, you know, diagrams aren't just words. And if it's more than just words, it's difficult to put in a text, an edited text from a manuscript. Uh, by the way, that's my neighbor upstairs playing the piano. I don't know if you can hear that. Um, there's... <laughs> 
there's a grand piano that's literally just eight feet above my head, directly above my head. I hope the floor holds. Um, anyway, I don't know if you can hear it. She's been practicing for a, a, a concert. Uh, she's a concert pianist, and so every day I hear the same songs over and over. Okay, stop. So the diagrams also kind of elude the attention of art historians as well, in part because they're often meant to illustrate what's being said in a text schematically, but with text in it. Um, and it's not entirely clear that this is art in the way in which the field of art history has defined it. It's certainly not an icon. It's not necessarily you know, re representational in a kind of realistic sense. Um, and... It seems to be closer to something like geometry. So geometric um, diagrams are certainly not something that art historians would consider to be, you know, the within their bailiwick. And so here we had it. It was something that had kind of eluded attention for so long, you know, and, until Linda decided to chase them down. Now, her background is definitely in art history, but she's written a number of studies that have long fired my imagination and one that I've mentioned I think on a previous episode which was the um, her study of the Theodosian obelisk and the the base uh, in the Hippodrome of Constantinople um, where she situates it within the topography of the Hippodrome by looking at you know who could see what depending on where they were seated so and drawing these kinds of lines of sight that I've often thought of as a kind of visual schematic of the Hippodrome in Constantinople, which is a place that I teach a lot about. In fact, I taught about it in class today um, and also write about. Um, and it just kind of helped me visualize the space. And there's another article where she takes this, the huge the colossal statue of Constantine in Rome that was in the what we call the Basilica of Maxentius, and asked the question, what was it looking at? And sort of, again, drew lines of sight between the monuments to see whether there was any kind of, uh, you know, sort of visual grammar established by the, the way the monuments were positioned in relation to each other and the line of sight of Constantine's statue. Anyway, it's all great work, and in my mind, at least, it qualifies one to work on Byzantine diagrams. Anyway, um, she's also done great work on Byzantine diagrams, and you can find references to that um, in the uh, description of the episode. I also want to note that she's one of the co-creators of an excellent online resource uh, on the art and architecture of the Middle Ages. This is the website artofthemiddleages.com and I'll put a link again in the description. Um, this accompanies a textbook with the same name but it also you know, works on its own. It is a wonderful resource. Uh, with um, interactive maps and plans, galleries, timelines, and also link to podcasts and so forth. I urge you to check it out, um, if, especially if you're teaching medieval art, but uh, um, also if you're just interested. So without any further delay, here is my conversation with Linda Safran about Byzantine diagrams. Hello, Linda. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. So Happy to be here. The, I think the last time... We met, I mean, it was in Toronto, and you asked me, like, out of the blue, like, what do you know about Byzantine diagrams? <laughs> I thought, I've never heard those two words put in the same sentence together. <laughs> I'd never, ever thought that there was such a topic. 
Uh, and here you are all these years later and you found all these wonderful specimens and you've written all these articles about it. And I thought it would just be wonderful to get the word out about these um, you know, strange attempts by these Byzantine thinkers to represent reality in, in, you know, not through words, not through images exactly, but this other thing. Can you tell us a little bit about what led you to the point to ask that question? Yes, I'd first like to say that when we had that conversation in 2016, it was very gratifying to find that you were ignorant of this topic. It was really an important stimulus, but I started to work on diagrams just a couple of years before that, because in 2014, my husband had been invited to participate in a research group on the visualization of knowledge in the Middle Ages and early modern period at the Israeli Institute for Advanced Studies. And I thought, well, if, if he's going to Jerusalem, I want to go and I want to be part of this group. And in fact, the group had no Byzantinist, as is typical yeah. in a small group of scholars. It was a group of eight, four Israelis and four non-Israelis. And so I thought, what, what can I work on uh, that has to do with this topic of the visualization of knowledge? And I, I had long been drawn to Byzantine pavements and, and pavements in general in the Middle Ages. You, you probably know the wonderful cut stone opus sectile floors, for instance, mm. the, the colorful pattern in the Hagia Sophia mm. and in many Byzantine churches. And I, I have always had a suspicion that those were meaningful because several of the examples in Europe in the Middle Ages are explicitly meaningful. The pavement in Westminster Abbey the, the, in the cathedral says in an inscription that it is an image of the, of the microcosm. And, and I thought that there is probably some meaning and not merely decorative um, sentiment behind the Byzantine floor. So I started to work on Byzantine pavements, but I was not able to prove my thesis. I haven't given it up, but I can't prove that they're visualizing a particular kind of knowledge. But in fact, what I discovered that was that basic work on Byzantine diagrams and diagrammatic thinking had not yet been done. And so I had to step back from it and ask people like you the question, what do you know about Byzantine diagrams? Because in fact, apart from very specialized studies by uh, somebody who worked on diagrams in Plato or in Aristotle's mechanics, there was no literature in general on Byzantine diagrams and absolutely no art historical references to it. And so I was surrounded by medievalists who were intimately familiar with mm. manuscript diagrams. They're, they're very well known and very well studied for the European Middle Ages. And I thought somebody's got to do this basic legwork. And, and so I did a bit of it. Yes. So that's so a long answer to your question. Th that the study of diagrams is more advanced in um, by scholars of Western medieval Europe. Um, so what makes them important to study like, what have we been missing out so far in our understanding of Byzantine epistemology uh, or visualization of knowledge um, that scholars in other cultures have made more advances toward? Well, by scholars in other cultures, I think we'd have to limit that to European um, okay. medieval art historians uh, as the, the brand new Dumbarton Oaks volume on 
diagrams in a cross-cultural perspective, which I co-edited with two colleagues, shows the study of Islamicate diagrams is also very mm. much behind that of, of European Latin diagrams. But what's really interesting and important, I think, is that diagrams occupy a liminal space between texts and images. So they can potentially inform us about both of those things, which are usually divided, but, but in fact, scholars of both should be, should be speaking to each other. So, so studying diagrams, I think, has the potential to bridge scholarly uh, disciplines, offer opportunities for um, cooperation, but behind that, reveal Byzantine ways of thinking in, in ways that we might not have recognized before. It, it's, it's important, I think, to know that Byzantine thinkers thinking in words sometimes had images behind them, and, and we can demonstrate verifiable cases for that. And, and also, I think, um, I'd like to think that I've shown, I've certainly proposed that regular Byzantines, non-scholars, also were invested in what I've called the diagrammatic mode of thinking. They recognized grids and hierarchies in their visual landscape, at least in their cityscapes. Mm -hmm. they, they did mental mapping to move around in Constantinople. So they didn't need a, a map on parchment or paper. Of course, they didn't have those. But but they they created maps themselves, and maps are a kind of, of diagram. So so I think the fact that there were there was a world of diagrams in Byzantium, both in the public sphere and in the more intimate sphere of books, is important in and of itself, and provides opportunities for us scholars to to do more kinds of creative work in this in this area that bridges texts and images. And this area is much more complicated to study than it might seem at first sight. And I say this to the audience who might think, yeah, I know what a diagram is. But once you start to you know, probe the range um, of, of specimens that, that you have here, um, it really becomes difficult to pin down, right? Um, like defining a diagram, because at one end, they can just simply be, they can approximate an image of a thing like a, just a figurative image. Um, I think I'm thinking here, for example, of the the diagram of the rainbow that you found in a manuscript of Bahimeris, which just kind of looks like a schematic representation of a of a rainbow. To at the other extreme, it's just schematically arranged text. So it's text that looks like a diagram. And and you in your writing, you've come up with terms like diagrammatic formulations and geometric schemata. Like there, there's all this range. Is there is there a definition of a diagram that you can offer, or is it best defined as a kind of spectrum, or how do you see it? Yes, I think a spectrum, I use the word continuum. Uh, most people, when they think of a diagram, are thinking of something like the margins of a Euclid manuscript, very straightforward mm. metric lines with some letters. And in fact, of course, the Greek word diagramma means through lines. So, so lines, geometry is the basis for a diagram. And, and, but I know very few diagrams that aren't supplemented by some letters or words. So that's one end. Let's say that's the left end of the continuum. Mm. So we've got, we've got simple diagrams, but then we've got more complicated ones, more lines, 
lines that can even form recognizable features or, or images um, that have more words. And I like to call these based on scholarship applied to Western European medieval diagrams, imagistic diagrams. So we have simple, linear, minimal diagrams to imagistic diagrams that can evoke or even, even include some images and even quite a few words. And then at the far end, let's say the right end of the, uh, of the continuum, because we read most of us from left to right, are what I've I'm calling and what have been called diagrammatic images. So fully fledged, fully colored, often gilded images that have the features of diagrams, such as registers that demonstrate, you know, with, with Christ at the top and then prophets or angels below, that demonstrate a kind of hierarchy. A hierarchy is a feature of diagrams and mm. comparisons and connections among different levels of materials are a feature of diagrams. So what somebody might call an image, I, because I'm now attuned to all things diagrammatic, I see the diagrammatic features of that. But certainly we're talking about a continuum and one could place, and I have placed in some, some Zoom lectures, I have placed specific diagrams along this continuum. Right. It's you, not an easy definition. You know no. that when you see them, you know, like pornography, right? <laughs> in the US, you know a diagram when you see one, but at the at the murkier far edges, there is a a conflation right. between diagrams and images. Ben Anderson has addressed this topic very uh very explicitly in the the diagram as paradigm Dumbarton Oaks volume. Yeah. And do you have a t-shirt that says, I see diagrams everywhere? <laughs> no, but I should. <laughs> and okay. what, it would take the form of a grid or a table <laughs> or perhaps some geometrical figures. I would be hard pressed to decide on the, on yes. the uh, ornament. <laughs> so let's take an example from one of the ends of the spectrum that you just mentioned. So these are what someone else might call like an image of the imperial family. Um, with you know Christ at the top, and you know maybe some angels or whatever, and then there's the these the emperor, the empress, the heirs, and so forth. And you look at that in a manuscript, like oh, this is just an, an imperial portrait. You know, it's hierarchical. Christ is at the top, and so on. So, how do you see that as a diagram? Well, I'm not the first to see see that as a diagram, although the words haven't always been used explicitly. I want to credit Henry Maguire and Cecily Hillsdale for for making these preliminary uh, or important observations. Think of something like the ivory of Romanos II and Eudokia, as you mm -hmm. describe Christ at the top, blessing the emperor and empress below him. So we have his head and their heads forming one triangle. Then the lines continue in that triangle down to the uh, imperial couple's elbows and their arms facing toward the center of the ivory, toward, toward Christ. So we have a double triangle there. And I think even without the, the red line drawn to make the explicit triangle, it's very clear once you're attuned to noticing these things that we've got triangles. And triangles immediately connote hierarchies. Mm. So yes, the hierarchy is there in the image, but in faced with other triangles in their world, 
I think that there was a, an innate understanding that this, this duplicates the, uh, the message of the ivory and that, and that in fact, the imperial arms and hands can be part of that triangle right. and not just their heads. So yes, I may be guilty as you've just charged of seeing diagrams perhaps in places where they're not explicitly there, but I, I guess I've seen my role as pointing out the possibility sure. that, that there are more diagrams in the mental landscape and physical landscape of the Byzantine. So if you project that also into three dimensions, we have the, the clearest case of all, which is the Middle Byzantine Church and, and its successors, mm -hmm. a pyramidal scheme, so a triangle in three dimensions with the Pantocrator at the top, whatever's in the, the rest of the dome below, the pendentives, and then down to the wall. So whether you look at this, uh, as Thomas Matthews did, as anagogically, that we start with the saints on the bottom and we go up to the top of the dome, or as Otto Damas did from the top down, it works the same way. It's, it's a clear case of an individual Byzantine putting himself or herself into this hierarchical space. So of course there of course there's a horizontal dimension, but predominantly yes. uh, with that with that much repeated church schema, the architectural and the decorative program combine to reinforce this sense of of cosmic knowledge, right? That that's what yep. this hierarchy yeah, yeah, is, yeah. right? That that who who is higher on the in, in the in the in the world in the universe. So these are representations, uh, say, of an imperial couple or family um, or architectural constructions that employ geometric elements, um, such as a triangle and so on, to convey hierarchical relationships. And, and in that and way... Not just hierarchical relationships. I, I would like to say more broadly, taxis, order right. in general. Hierarchy right. is one of those, and it's one of the principal ones that I've identified in, in diagrams outside of books. But I would say that I would like to say, I would like to be able to prove that that uh, from, both from the top down and from the bottom up, Byzantines were supposed to understand their place in the order. Sure, sure. And yeah, yeah. That this is manifested in many ways, some of which are visual, and the methods for reinforcing that spatial order, spatial taxis, uh, are diagrammatic tools. Diagrammatic tools are used to reinforce that. And this, this order of the universe, of, of the Byzantine's world, I think is reinforced by uh, uh, diagrams in the temporal sphere. I think they're diagrams of time as well as space. And so what do I mean by that? Hmm. Things like the public clocks. We know there oh, were yeah. four of them in Constantinople. Things like uh, astrolabes to tell time, sundials, which were very common, are still common on the south-facing sunny sides mm -hmm. of public buildings and especially churches. By dividing up the day into 12 hours yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. very orderly very regular reinforcing the sense that time unfurls in an orderly way and there are all kinds of time that's that's daily time but there's also 
um, uh, regnal time, personal time, the liturgical calendar time. In that sense, the grid format of, of calendar icons is, I think, not an accident and yeah. is, is conscious or unconscious manifestation of this sense that 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 diagrams connect with order and and you know whether they're consciously imposed from above i i wouldn't say but but they're widely understood and they help reinforce a sense that the time and space is orderly yeah and order is a is a byword for for diagrams you know orderly in terms of registers or geometric schemata whatever and I should say for the benefit of the audience here that we're we kind of jumped into the deep end of the pool here and we're talking about some of the more sophisticated cases. Um, you have actually found a great number of, uh, you know, more conventionally understood diagrams that that, you know, any modern reader who's, you know, not. Yes, uh, yes. Yeah. So there are a lot of those, too. We're, we're just kind yeah. of talking about the the kind of outer edges of the spectrum in, in terms of how far you can apply this concept. Um, and so there's another category that uh, bears some discussion, which is that of maps. Um, and, you know, we, one, one can be more or less sophisticated in understanding what maps are. And we, we sort of tend to have this sense, like as practical users, that this is just a, a representation of uh, a clear, it's sort of an immaculate representation of reality that guides us, you know, to move through the world. But of course, you know, there's maps are inherently diagrammatic and also very political, which is, you know, a, a whole other aspect. Um, so to what degree are is attempts to map the world? How do you see them as diagrammatic in what context? I don't think there's any doubt that maps are a kind of diagram. They're a, a subset of diagrams, if you want, an important, mm. an important set. And we know the Byzantines had maps and, and did mapping. There are lots of textual references to uh, late antique and later maps, even if we don't have these maps until quite late in, in the Byzantine period. Although, if you think of something like the Madaba map, the floor, mm. uh, the pavement of what is now a, a church in, um, in, in Jordan, uh, there, there are other mosaic floor maps. Uh, maps are a way of making sense of the world, of mm. claiming territory, proclaiming territory. That's why they were on walls, right? That's why they were often associated with imperial uh, patronage. Mm -hmm. But we have textual references to Byzantine maps and also Byzantine spheres. And I discussed some of these in... in uh, in the latest Dio diagrams volume. Um, yeah, I'm thinking, for example, of like uh, the uh, Puttinger map, um, which is based on like a early fifth century original, I think, um, which is uh, a lot of people have seen it, I'm sure. So it's a map of the Roman Empire. And it's very, very long, like many, many, many feet long, but only one foot like tall. And if you look at it, you don't recognize any geological, any like geo geographical features um, until you realize that, no, they're all there. They're just super distended. And like the purpose of it is in a certain sense to, um, ref to represent roots, 
like the Roman roads and the stations and cities along the way. And so it doesn't really matter for the map's purposes to capture um, like the coordinate, the geographical coordinates of each place, but to represent the routes. And so in that respect, it's much more like a metro map of a city that we have, which doesn't, you know, map on it's the coordinates of the stations don't map onto what they would look like if you put them on a you know geological map, uh, but they're just meant to schematically represent how all the lines are arranged. Um, so is, is that something that falls into the territory of a diagram? I, I think it definitely does, but I don't know any examples like that from yeah. the Later Byzantine on. world. It's clear from some late references, uh, late Byzantine references, now I can't remember if it's Planudes or Holobolos, um, who talks about uh, the dimensions of a particular map. And one of them is, is many meters long. So mm. clearly we're not talking about maps in books, but rather maps on, right. I suppose, paper by that time that could be laid out on a table and, and walked around or, or moved around. There are also small maps we have those in Greek manuscripts starting in late antiquity that simply show the, the earth at the center or the, the sea, Thalassa is labeled at the center. So they're very schematic late antique maps that do get copied in Byzantine books. But I, I understood your question to be the, about actual maps outside of books. Mm. And we know that there were some on walls and and clearly there were some that were laid out on surfaces and that required a kind of kinesis either of the the, the surface of the map or the people viewing it right. to appreciate. So there, there's no question that Byzantines had maps. They also had plans, at least architectural plans, at least in some stages, although uh, they don't remain as common as they were in, in uh, the, the Roman and late antique periods. Uh, Byzantines did measuring, whether with sharpened sticks or with, with ropes. They didn't follow the clear Roman centuriation, you know, parceling mm -hmm. land into exactly the same um, size properties, uh, but they do refer to to the these properties, all of them as quadrilateral, as if they had no, they use a geometric term, a diagrammatic term, but but surely not all of them for ge geographical reasons could have been in that in that precise form. So uh I don't know of maps like the Poitinger map that show stades that that articulate distances between uh between points on the map, but that doesn't mean yeah. they're not out there. Sure, sure. Find. And uh, there are some city maps uh, in the margins of some middle Byzantine manuscripts, uh, a map of Athens, I recall, there may be one of a uh, hypothetical map of Troy, but certainly one of, uh, of Greece, uh, not not the country of Greece, but a city map. Uh, but those are rare. I haven't seen yeah. a lot of those, which is why my answer to your question is not as no, as no, no. That's, as I that's fine. Like. I'm, I, I just wanted to get maps out there because it's a category of representation that I think should be included here, even though you know cartography has it, it's kind of its own discipline, and there are you know separate books written about that. Um, well, Filippo Pontani, whom I believe you have interviewed, mm -hmm. wrote a wonderful article about a Byzantine map. 
Um, and so I would direct everyone to, <laughs> to look sure. into that. It's, uh, it's so about, I, I don't remember the title exactly, but it's something about the size of a fingernail. Um, it's it's a it's a it's a small map, but he does a lot with it. Okay, I'll look it up. Um, so let's talk about diagrams, you know, proper in quotation marks in books. Uh, so what do the majority of Byzantine diagrams represent um, that you have found? And are these uh, to what degree are these um, a, a Byzantine innovation or a tradition that carries over from antiquity? Well, first of all, there are almost all kinds of Byzantine diagrams in books. And by, by qualifying it, let me just get that out of the way. I have not found two kinds of diagrams that are found in Latin medieval books. Uh, diagrams that show extensive genealogies and diagrams that chronicle history. I, I don't want to say that no such diagrams existed in the Byzantine world. I have not found any. And I mm. think that that's probably significant. What have I found and what, of course, have others found? Really everything else. Uh, diagrams that relate to the to the quadrivium, that is the, the scientific quartet of the Byzantine curriculum, um, uh, arithmetic, geometry, music, astronomy, uh, and underneath astronomy, of course, is astrology, the practical application of astronomy, diagrams relating to the trivium, um, the, the rhetoric, logic, or philosophy, um, grammar. Uh, beyond that, there are military diagrams mm, yeah. that show, show wonderful placement of all different kinds of uh, figures in a in military camps. Eric McGear has has uh, studied those very well. I think uh, there are diagrams that show family relationships, although not very many of them. Not what I would call extensive genealogies. I'm thinking of things like the tree of Jesse, mm -hmm. uh, a biblical a tree, or uh, and on the fringes of the Byzantine world, especially in southern Italy, a few trees of consanguinity, but not not many. And there are, the, there are theological diagrams, which has been a particular interest of mine. So, so they're quite a diverse range. And that was the most surprising thing to me when I discovered, and I'm putting that in, in ironic air quotes, when I discovered diagrams is that there were so many more than the Euclidean <laughs> diagrams that I mm -hmm. imagined. And this is leaving aside what you call the, the far edge of the the um, continuum of, of diagrams, if diagrams in in three dimensional space. So there are all kinds of them, and I consider myself very fortunate to have uh, stumbled on a way to find some. Oh yes, uh, you, you tell. Us. <laughs> the the problem is that Byzantine studies was for so long a a, a philologically focused discipline mm -hmm. that uh, many catalogs of manuscripts never even recorded the presence of diagrams. So the, the great 12-volume uh, catalog of astrological manuscripts in Byzantium that dates from 1898 to 1953, I believe, rarely mentions a diagram, even though these astrological diagrams are fantastic and, and super interesting. I was at Dumbarton Oaks 
source of so many good ideas in, in our field. And the then librarian, Deb Brown, suggested to me that I look at the catalog of the Byzantine microfilms. And in that cataloging, I found more rigor in terms of, of the catalogers listing the contents of the microfilms. So that was a, a quick and dirty way, if you want, for me to understand the range of Byzantine books that contained diagrams. You can go to the Pinakes database and others now, and you will find some references, but that's an enormous database yes. and, it's, and, and not complete as, as no database can be complete. So it, after the initial looking at all the DO microfilms and then going to specific uh, library collections and, and, and following all kinds of trails, uh, I realized that this is not, it's not a task for one person. It's not a task for one lifetime. There are lots of diagrams out there waiting to be rediscovered and to be put into dialogue with one another. And I think that's really the key that other people knew about diagrams in their fields, but no one was putting these diagrams together uh, in, in ways that are potentially, I hope, have been uh, already born fruit. Yeah, I'm glad you clarified that a little bit because over the years I've been wondering how you were going about finding diagrams and exactly for the reason that you said that insofar as diagrams accompany texts, you know, our philologist colleagues who edit texts from manuscripts and publish them don't include diagrams, at least very, very rarely. Like that's not part of the sort of textual apparatus that they're right. also trained to, to do. And so I was imagining, wow, there can be so many of these things that are just, that never made the leap from manuscript to published edition. How do you go about finding them? So no, so you're saying there's more out there than, uh, than you. Absolutely. I, I, oh, okay. I, my my job, as I saw it, was to expose the tip of the iceberg and okay. let other people float away right, with, right. With, with these and based on their own interests. But I think I think it's quite telling that none of the recent spate of handbooks on any areas of Byzantine studies hmm. have included an entry for diagrams. And and I I think that's a, a gap, and I think it's a loss. But I yeah. I I would like to think that that at least these are perhaps, I hope, more in the in the eye of people. And I, I know for a fact that there are there are many uh, or at least several junior scholars working on uh, diagrammatic um, uh, topics now. Art historians, not only, but I, I know the art historians best, perhaps, but the the important thing is is. Um, I suppose for all of us, but certainly for me, is is uh, being humble and recognizing one's limitations and realizing the the potential body of material here that is relatively unexplored, and that if if groups could collaborate to explore these, uh, then then the findings from one discipline are possibly applicable to sure. to uh, others. It's it's a beautiful world of diagrams there, and I really I had I had no idea, and I'm I'm happy to have been exposed to them, and I'm happy to expose other people to them as well. 
and I can tell from your writing that you really find a kind of aesthetic appreciation in these uh, artifacts as well. Um, can, can I ask, what is a tree diagram? You mentioned them um, a few moments earlier. Uh, so a, a tree diagram could apply to any kind of branching diagrams. And in the Byzantine world, these tend to move from top to bottom. So you'll have things like the virtues and vices, and it'll say, uh, the diagram will show the four cardinal virtues, justice, prudence, um, fortitude, and temperance. And then under each of those, you'll get subdivisions. Mm -hmm. So under justice, you get um, piety and civic virtue and um, honesty or morality. So that that's that's a pretty simple tree. But unlike what we think of as a tree growing from bottom to top, mm. that's very rare among the diagrams I found in the Byzantine world. There's very little arborization in Byzantine diagrams, whereas, whereas uh, European medieval diagrams do tend to have lots of leaves and, and blossoms and so on. <laughs> a specific type, type of tree diagram that that the listeners may already be aware of is a porphyrian tree, a tree of porphyry. These are the categories of Aristotle that were systematized, if you want, by porphyry in the in the third century, where uh, a species is divided into the, the genera and then subdivided, and, and it continues down to, to individuals, even. Um, there are other tree-like diagrams as well. I, I want to I give a shout out to the fact that Byzantium was a center for Kabbalistic thought starting in the 13th oh, yes. century. So there are Hebrew diagrams that take vaguely tree-like forms, mostly showing the, the, the ten sefirot, the emanations of God. And again, in other cultural groups, those look more like trees. Actually, in the early modern period, those diagrams look like people, which is a, a uh. whole other topic. Uh, but it, it's important to remember that we're not just, I'm not just talking about diagrams in Greek, right? but right. In, in the whole multi uh, polyglot and multicultural uh, Byzantine empire, there was, there was space for other kinds of diagrams, some of which took familiar forms of geometric schemata or vaguely tree-like. Right. Uh, so let's turn to categories of theological diagrams. Um, I was in, I really loved the one that was the the wheel with spokes diagram of God, um, or God in the world. Can you explain to us a little bit how this worked and how the color coding worked? Okay, so th this think of a wheel. Anyone who's listening, it's it's really not hard. You've got the the, the center mm -hmm. and then spokes going out to an outer larger circle. So that's a diagram that uh, was associated with um, Dorotheus of Gaza in the sixth century. Although sometimes you find you find the diagram in other contexts that aren't in that specific text. And the one Anthony is referring to, I think, uh, was part of a, a small group of colored diagrams from an Eviron monastery manuscript. 15th century manuscript on Mount Athos, most Byzantine diagrams have no color. And that's what made this little group so attractive to me. It, it, it stood out for its colorfulness. So at the center of the wheel, representing God at the center, that's colored yellow. In all of these diagrams, God is yellow. Clearly, they didn't have 
the means to make it gilded. Right. But right. but that's that's what the meaning is. The outer wheel in this case is a dark blue, and the spokes as they move from the world of the outer wheel closer to God come closer not just to God but to one another. So right. this accompanies Dorotheus's text on uh, oh gosh um, uh, how to come closer to one's neighbor, and and so the the wheel visualizes getting close to God as a way of getting close to other humans and being close with other humans as a way of getting access to, to God. But the, the colored nature of those diagrams is, uh, if not exceptional, it, it is certainly unusual. But one thing I like about them is that the, the uh, artist slash scribe of that Iveron manuscript has been very consistent with his with his use of I'm saying his I think that's legit <laughs> with his use of, of, of <laughs> colors case, yes yes <laughs> um so how were other um how were other aspects of uh, the divine depicted diagrammatically and I'm thinking here specifically of the trinity which is a concept that kind of does invite um diagrammatic representation in fact rep schematic representation of all kinds uh, I'm thinking of texts and actions and and so forth that people took, especially during the fourth century when they were fighting it out. Uh, but so before the the kind of culture war with the Catholics over union that involved the, you know the procession of the Holy Spirit, so that complicated things. Before that, how was the Trinity represented diagrammatically? Well, that's a that's a very hard question because we don't have, as far as I can tell, any images. Uh, any, excuse me, any diagrams, including mm -hmm. diagrammatic images uh, of the Trinity before the 13th century flourishing for the reason you just mentioned when uh, controversies really uh, about union really come to a head. Photius refers to something that seems diagrammatic. It seems like he was thinking in terms of a triangle. Uh, you can imagine the um, uh, types for the Trinity, like the uh, philoxenia, the hospitality of Abraham, as a, in a kind of triangular format, or you know, the, the characters sitting around a table, but but the the mm. head angel who is Christ at at the head of it, if you were, even if it's a circular table, he, he it is always at the at the center top. So it it's not. It's not clear what the images were. There are scattered references to concrete thinking and diagrammatic thinking. Anastasius of Sinai in the seventh, eighth century mm. comes to mind. I, I think they were they were thinking in terms of diagrams. They may have been incorporating diagrams. Uh, Anastasius stands out because he does have a kind of diagrammatic cross. A cross is itself a diagram, of course, but he 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 refers to the natures of Christ in this cross-shaped drawing in, in at least one of his manuscripts. So the two natures of Christ is not something I've seen a lot of in, in diagrams, but uh, again, these things may be out there, but I have not been able to find roots concrete roots, that is concrete diagrams before the 13th century that really engage with the problem 
of the Trinity. What you find instead is, is the, the sources, Gregory of Nazianz and Gregory of Nyssa, etc., all saying that the Trinity is beyond us. We cannot comprehend it. Um, my analogies for it are, are not good enough. This is, I'm speaking for, for Gregory mm -hmm. uh, here. Uh, and it's not clear whether they tried. Okay, so I may have misunderstood then because, okay, so it's possible that the theological debates with the Latins sparked a all this production of diagrams in the later period that were meant to illustrate the Orthodox point of view? Again, our, we have such enormous holes in, in mm. our evidence, uh, leaving aside the, the, the holes outside of, of books, just, just focusing on the manuscripts for the moment. We just, can we attribute the flourishing of theological, specifically Trinitarian diagrams in the 13th and 15th centuries to the fact that those were moments of pressure and, and, and conflict? or to the fact that there's a flourishing of manuscripts oh, in precisely right. yes, those yes. periods. Sure, it's, sure. I, I, don't, I don't know the answer to that question, and I'm not sure it's possible to know the answer, but what is known is that in the 1270s, out of nowhere, it seems, we have this priest monk named Hierotheos coming seemingly out of nowhere and all of a sudden committing ideas to to diagrams on in manuscripts. Mm. Uh, and, and his diagrams became well enough known or treasured enough to then be copied and referred to two centuries later. So I don't know whether he was one of many <laughs> uh, mm -hmm. making diagrams to prepare for the, the debates with the Latins at the Union of Lyon or, or whether he was alone. Um, this Hierotheos was definitely criticized for his attempts at diagramming uh, the Trinity. He, he writes a, a treatise, against, it's called Against the Slanderers, who accuse him of using geometric lines. That, that's, that's literally his term. Um, geometric case grammes to uh to diagram the undiagrammable and he uses that phrase as well um so he he defends himself against that but he does it anyway he does diagram but he doesn't he is careful to diagram both the quote unquote mistaken roman right belief and the correct orthodox mm belief and to distinguish between them. And then his yes, they put an X through one and a check next to the other. No, but but there is a diagrammatic formulation, which is what the the X is. I think you said that without realizing it. The the mistaken Latin understanding would have the Trinity represented, for instance, as as a straight line that goes, as I mentioned in my continuum hmm. analogy before, that goes from left to right. That as if there is some progression among the hypostases, among mm. the, the, the persons of the Trinity, or as having three circles, either tangent or overlapping in a horizontal row or a vertical row. Again, that, that 
puts right. the sun in the middle. And this, of course, is, is part of the, the, the big debate about the, the filioque. Yes. What is the relationship among those among those three parts? So those, those things are bad. Those formulations are bad uh, diagrammatically and theologically from the orthodox point of view. And instead, we need other formulations. Uh, I imagine this is what Hierophaeus was was saying. And and what he comes up with is a series of circles. And of course, circles have long been considered the most perfect form. This, this, and and the form associated with heaven. This this goes back to to, uh, biblical sources, ancient sources, um, uh, even even non-Western sources, even in China, we have the same idea that the heaven is a circle and the earth is a square. So, so the the choice of circles is comes from from deep cultural beliefs. I think that mm-hmm. that could even be termed cross-cultural. So, Hierotheus's formulation is to have circles that are arranged in three circles for the three hypotheses arranged, of course, in the form of a triangle, because they can't be arranged in a linear form, either left, right, or up and down. So he, he interconnects the circles and, and where the circles overlap, he labels those overlaps as light and where the three circles intersect at the center, you have nature or essence, physis. So it's it's a beautiful formulation, and it's so beautiful that 200 years later, a much more important theologian, Joseph Briennios, picks up on this idea and repeats uh, some of Hierotheus's diagrams. Otherwise, those diagrams would have been forgotten, I think, because I dare say most uh, people who study Byzantine theology now have never heard of this individual, Hierotheos. I think he's chiefly notable for his diagrams, which is to say that he's hardly notable at all. Well, he is Uh, now. I I, I hope he is now. Um, So I think all the Byzantine theologians recognize that you couldn't properly diagram the Trinity. It was impossible to do so. Our our human minds are, are not possible, but at moments of crisis, they they took a stab at doing so anyway. Yes, and he produced something like a Venn diagram. Absolutely. Yeah. Avant la lettre. And yeah, um, and I had never heard of him, I think, before I read him about, about him in your um, article. Um, and I find it fascinating that there was controversy excited um, over his use of diagrams. And it got me thinking about the kind of epistemic status of diagrams, because clearly he's not like diagrams are not used to formulate orthodoxy. They're not used in definitions of the creed, um, which again, I thought interesting, like why not? Like why would a verbal formulation, which in theory they would admit is also inadequate for capturing the reality of God. um, So is a diagram, I suppose. Um, Nevertheless, verbal formulations became canonical and contested, but you know, diagrammatic representation seems to have excited a much more sort of low level of controversy. But but there was debate over, right? There was debate. I, I think as you call it, the epistemology is, is important here. What what does putting lines on paper do? If you've got a word, even now if you've got a Byzantine Greek word, it it permits all kinds of nuanced hmm. and, and different 
interpretations, right? Different translators will translate that word differently. When you've got a line on the page, there's less flexibility, perhaps. The Byzantines dealt with this issue. They, in, in mathematical diagrams, for instance, they, they tried not to be specific. They tried not to pin down definitions. If, if the verbal definition says, take a triangle, they, they use, for instance, sometimes curved lines. They want to show in the diagram the flexibility. That's, that's within mathematics. I think outside of that and, and here the diagram and the text could be understood <laughs> by different viewers in, in quite different right. ways. Right. Once you've got lines on the page, you're making that Trinitarian idea more concrete. And and perhaps it shouldn't have yeah. been made or be made more concrete. I'm, I'm sure that's what the majority of theologians felt. Although, thanks to Briennios, who is a, a as far as I understand, first class yeah. Byzantine thinker, uh, they they had some legitimacy, but they were never hugely widespread. There are I, I found one wonderful. Uh, manuscript copied in 1365, where an individual unknown claims to have come up with a Trinity diagram by himself. It's, it's again, the overlapping trio of circles arranged in a triangular format. I wrote about this um, in, in an early article. Um, he, he says this, this formulation by me, which, you know, we, we can throw that out, right? It's probably not just by him, but he's taking credit for it. He, he writes at the end, this is the Trinity, this is what it's about. At the end, he writes, Kalos. This is a good formulation, and my drawing is good. My well drawing done. is is well done. And I wish I knew who this, who this was. Yeah. But I guess part of the point here is that even not great thinkers could be playing with these ideas and thinking. It's hard for me even before I looked at diagrams to not think of the Trinity, not that I think of it often, but not to think of it in, in visual terms. Yes. It's a, it's a hard thing to do. I, I agree. I'm not on the, on the plane, the, the spiritual level of, of any of the Byzantine thinkers I've, I've just been talking about, but I, I think it comes quite naturally to one's mind and perhaps to the Byzantines mind to think in those terms, but for us, a, a, a number of reasons they were reluctant to to fix that yeah. interpretation uh, on on the page and and the ones who did some of the ones who did were challenged for it and maybe the reason we don't have enough diagrams enough for my liking we don't have many diagrams until the late Byzantine period is is because they were they were really skittish about it until push came to shove and the discussions about union made the need for these visual and verbal formulations more pressing. I have not a shred of evidence. I wish I did that somebody pulled out a diagram at, at Ferrara yes. or Florence and said, look at this, look at your mistakes here or, or see why we're right. I would love to find evidence for that. Maybe somebody listening has, has a shred of evidence, yeah. but it's, it's impossible to think imagine that uh, at least Briennios's diagrams weren't used to prepare 
for right. such things. He died before that particular uh, uh, yeah. council uh, for our Florence. Um, and Hierotheos didn't go to Lyon, but I, I have to think that the diagrams were useful. And, and that's kind of the essence of a, a diagram, isn't it? They're, they're supposed to do some work. Yes. Right. Yes. They they do something. They they visualize knowledge. They interrelate things. They make some things concrete. Parentheses, maybe even things that oughtn't to be right. quite right. so concrete. So yeah, they they um, have a, a function. So for the Trinity in particular, you know, two dimensions might just simply not be enough when you have three hypostases in the you know the single you know consubstantial. Uh, Godhead plus one of them has two natures. It it gets complicated. It, it, one can imagine this more easily in uh, in in computerized you know formulations, right. you know, drilling drilling deep. But but I will say that in at least uh, some manuscripts, extra paper was added to late manuscripts to make it possible to complete right. the diagram. Um, I've also seen seen uh, manuscripts where there are squiggles of diagrams with no text. Somebody's sort of working with circles, and uh, again, I'm so used to seeing these circles that I, I read something more into them, perhaps right. than than was meant. But uh, yeah, now, now even now, though, with our computer. Uh, technology uh, and possibilities, uh, we are hard pressed <laughs> to communicate this, this very complicated idea. And, yeah, and um, in, in the metaverse, we're having trouble with legs, right? With what? With legs. Uh, okay, inside comment, well, sorry. So, you know, Facebook next generation is this three-dimensional uh, virtual space where we're supposed to interact, I guess. Uh, <laughs> And they have they have trouble giving uh, the people's avatars legs. But anyway, that's I, well. I I know about that from the Simpsons. Isn't it true that they only ever have four fingers because they they couldn't they couldn't? It, yeah, manage. the animation is. Yeah. Simpsons are twenty five years old at least. Uh, they, yes, our 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 human capabilities are still limited. Yes. Period. Um, <laughs> Okay, Linda, so we're almost out of time. Um, any final thoughts about diagrams? You want to leave our readers with some, just some, you know, points about where this can go next? Wow. Um, uh, I guess bottom line is, is uh, I hope I've made a, a small contribution to stimulate more people to look at ways that the Byzantines visualize knowledge. Uh, that go beyond the the strictly verbal. Again, I'm not the first person to notice uh, Byzantine diagrams, but I think by by talking to people in in related and even unrelated disciplines, we can find out a lot more about these these people that we study and how they thought in ways that cross the lines between the verbal and the visual. And that's been an exciting path for me, and I hope others uh, and I know others are are taking it up. Absolutely, because the material itself has sort of fallen into the crack between our disciplines, you know, philology and editing of text on the one hand and art history, study of visual materials on the other. And it's kind of neither entirely in either one. And so it, we've just kind of missed it. So thank you for drawing attention to it and finding well, falling it. And into cracks, falling into cracks is kind of what I do. <laughs> my my previous work was on Southern Italy. It was too Western for the Byzantines and too, too right. Byzantine 
for the right. and theory. and pavements and you were working on pavements too so i i'm just a liminal gal <laughs> thank right. you so much for this opportunity to um to um remember my enthusiasms for diagrams and and uh maybe we'll get those t-shirts this was great linda thank you so much and take thank care thank you anthony thanks for having me